Good morning, friends. We are so glad that you're hanging out with us this morning. If you've been with us over the last uh, handful of months, we've been walking through the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to take a little break for Christmas, and we're going to walk through a series uh, that uh, just over the weeks of Advent. Um, Advent is the preparation of the coming Messiah, and and really you can see it kind of unfold in in four uh, different weeks, uh, which kind of celebrate different aspects of Advent or the expectation of the Messiah. Uh, Week one is around the idea of hope. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a few moments. Um, week two is, is the idea of, of faith. Week three, the idea of joy. And then week four uh, is around peace and the love of our Savior. Uh, then we're going to celebrate and kind of commence this entire Advent series on uh, our Stone Point Family Christmas on December 23rd. And we're going to talk about the light of the world. Uh, and so I encourage you to come and be a part of that over the next handful of weeks. Uh, and certainly look forward to, to celebrating with you guys. Uh, this is my favorite time of the year, uh, probably uh, just because of the, the joy that this season brings. It is also the most challenging time of, of the year for me because I, I seem to add like 15 pounds. And uh, I don't know if you can relate, but it can be a real struggle. How, how do we honor God and also be gluttons at the same time? Um, it's this is a wrestle that's real for me. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a great Thanksgiving. Hope that you and your family enjoyed that as well. Uh, when we think about hope, uh, what is hope? Uh, Webster would define it this way. Uh, it's the feeling or an expectation of a desire. Uh, it's the longing for a certain thing to come to pass, something to happen uh, is the idea of hope. Um, I was reading an illustration as preparing for this message uh, of, a, of a guy who had been taken captive by a king. Uh, he was going to be sentenced to death, and uh, he pleaded with this king. He said, your majesty, your majesty, please spare my life. And the king looked at him and said, why would I spare your life? And he says, listen, if you'll spare my life, he goes, or at least give me some time. He says, I promise you that in one year, I'll teach your horse to fly. And the king looked at him and goes, do What? He goes, listen, if you'll give me just one year, your majesty, I'll teach your horse to fly. And the king goes, okay, cool, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll, I'll give you one year, but if one year from now you have not taught my horse to fly, then he goes, you're going to be executed. He goes, fair enough. And he leaves the, the king's chambers, and, and some of the men are kind of bantering back and forth. One of them pulls the guy aside, and he goes, what in the world are you doing? Like, you're going you're gonna to teach the, the king's horse to fly? And he goes, hey, listen. He goes, I have hope. He goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? You have hope. He goes, listen, in a year, a lot of things can happen. He goes, in a year from now, he goes, the king could have died. He goes, in a year from now, maybe I will have died. Or he goes, but maybe in a year from now, the king's horse will have died. <laughs> and he goes, and who knows? Maybe within the next year, I'll teach the king's horse to fly. Now that, my friends, is hope, isn't it? It's the idea, the expectation, the longing. It's something to be fulfilled. Uh, Claire Luce, um, actress and politician, said this many years ago. There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. And I think oftentimes we grow hopeless. But the question is, is as believers in Christ, as people of the faith, what is our hope? Um, I think um, the author of Hebrews really gives us a great summation of hope. I think you could call it faith in some ways. Uh, but in Hebrews 11:1, 1, it just says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. It's the idea that things are going to come to pass because 
they're true. It's the idea that even if you can't see it, you believe it. It's the expectation, the longing, the fulfillment of something. It's interesting because Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2, and he goes, there was a time where you didn't have hope, right? Um, that, you, that you didn't have an expectation, a longing fulfilled. He writes to the church in Ephesus, and in chapter 2, uh, verses 12 and 13, look what Paul wrote to them. He says, there was a time, remember there, that you were separated from Christ? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel? You were strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope? He goes, there was a time where you didn't realize that you had no hope. There was a time where you were aliens and strangers in the world. You were without, without hope. You were without anything. Why? Because he says, you were without God in the world. He goes on, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's summation of hope is that you were once alienated and strangers, you were without hope in the world, meaning you didn't know God. You didn't know Christ, but he goes, now you know him. The idea, the expectation of us for Christmas is not that, that there is some idea of an expectation longing to happen, something that you can't see, but actually it's a tangible expression found in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is a person. Hope is fulfilled, as Paul would say to the church of Ephesus, through Christ. What's interesting, though, is that we get to kind of test our, our hope, right? We can, we can test whether or not our hope is real. Uh, if you remember in Romans, uh, we were studying a handful of weeks ago in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and following, we see how hope is produced. Here's how hope is produced. Paul writes, Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The idea, the expectation that we're longing for is not the same that the Jews were longing for. The, the Jews were longing for a Messiah, someone to set them free. They were longing for a hope in the world. But what Paul is saying is that we have hope. Hope has arrived. Hope is Jesus. And more than that, you get to see the identity of your faith when you have trials of many kinds. When, you're, when your faith is tested, when you have to endure things, that's when you know that there's hope. Hope is that even though you go into Christmas and you long for the loved one that you don't have, that you don't grieve as if you have no hope is what Paul would say. That we, we grieve because we know of what? Our hope. Our hope is that we will see people again because of who? Jesus Christ. We were once far off, we've been brought near because of Jesus Christ. We are no longer aliens, orphans, or strangers. Why? Because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can endure all obstacles, even though there's hardships of many kinds. We know that the afflictions in this life are light and they're momentary because God is using all of those to produce in us hope and character and perseverance. That's why the half-brother of Jesus uh, says that we will rejoice when we face trials of various kinds. See, that's what hope is. And I don't know about you, um, are you filled with hope? But even let me ask you this question. Do you think there are people in the world without hope? Do you think there's people around us that long for something that is fulfilling, something that is meaningful? Well, I will tell you probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible and probably the greatest characterization of hope, even though we wouldn't realize it when we're reading the story, happens in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. It's probably one of my favorite stories, and I'll, I'll tell you why here in a bit. 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll put it for you up on the screen. But we would love for you to have a Bible that you could open and read with us every week. But more than that, that you could read on a daily basis. Uh, Because I believe that when we read God's Word, that life change happens. In John chapter 4, you see... um, Jesus, and he's going to leave the area of, of really Judea. That's where uh, Bethlehem and Jerusalem and kind of the, the center of, of the known world at that time uh, in terms of, of uh, the region and the area of the Jews. That's kind of where Jesus is hanging out. Now, we're reading from John, and John is one of the, the Gospels. So if you're here and you're like, I don't know where the Gospels are, I don't even know where, really where to turn. The, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here's what's interesting. There are what we call the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they write in very similar forms. You hear a lot of the same stories repeated. But in John's gospel, it's different. John doesn't give you the same things that everybody else gives you. John gives you different accounts. Matter of fact, the only reason we know that Jesus started his ministry in, uh, in kind of the Judea area is because of John. John tells us that. And so what you have here is Jesus, and then uh, he's about to leave, Um, the area of Judea, uh, Judea, and we're going to see where he's going to head. He's going to head north toward the area of Galilee. So let's pick up in John chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to begin to read. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he, meaning Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now here it is. Jesus has been in Judea. Um, he's caused quite a commotion because he's, he's gaining uh, in status and followers and even the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the law in the known world at that time, the Jewish leaders, are paying attention to Jesus and all that he's doing. And they're a little bit stirred by Jesus. And so Jesus is going to make way to the north and he's going to go to, the, to Galilee. But what's interesting is in verse 4, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria, let me tell you a little bit about that, is a, is a place that has been around uh, for a long time. It's where Jacob's well is. Um, it's a, a well that had been dug almost 2,000 years earlier by Jacob. It was a place of life and hope. But the problem was, is that in 722 B.C., God had promised over the time, the, the prophets and, and all the people of Israel, that if you don't worship me, then I'm going to remove you from the land. So he tells them that, hey, I should be the apple of your eye. If I'm not, then he goes, I'm going to remove your land, your people, your blessing. They didn't necessarily believe God, but eventually God said, watch me. And and he does exactly what he said. In 722, Assyria comes in. They sweep through the people of the land. They take the Israelites and the, the large majority of them, and they export them out of the land. And here it is, a handful of remaining Jews that are left there in, in, in the area of Mount Gerasim, the area of, of uh, old ancient Shechem, and it's right there in the, the region of Samaria by Mount Ebal um, and, and Gerasim. And you've got these Samaritan people. The, the challenge is as though uh, the Assyrians, though, will allow others to begin to move in, and more people begin to migrate in. And what you have is you have a handful of leftover Jews now migrating into the culture with these handful of other countries and, and peoples. And so they try to do their best to keep really to, to the law and to the Torah. Uh, Genesis 
uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They despise anything beyond that. The historical books, the prophets, they don't have anything to do with that. They kind of hold fast to what they know. The problem is, is that they intermarry with all these other cultures and they also take on all their forms of religion. And so the Samaritans are kind of a conglomeration of lots of different things. They would say, oh yeah, we believe in God, but the problem is they don't live for him and they really take on all these other forms of pagan worship. And so the Samaritans over the time become a detestable people to the loyal Hesed Jew. Matter of fact, the Jew would look upon the Samaritan and they would say, you're a half-breed. They would even go as far as to say, you are the dog under the table getting scraps. They would call them mutts, half-breeds. A Jew at that time would not dare to enter into the area of Samaria. So if you're going from Judea to Galilee, you go around it. There's a handful of different paths that you could take, but the one path you don't take is straight up to the north through the area of of Samaria. You don't go that way. And so here it is, Jesus leaving the area of Judea where he's done some ministry, heading north towards Galilee, and he chooses, verse 4, to pass straight through Samaria. This place that 700 years earlier had become a conglomeration of lots of different people. Matter of fact, Samaria is so detestable that in John chapter 8, the Pharisees are having a conversation with Jesus and they ask him the question, hey, are you a Samaritan that's demon-possessed? They wanted to, 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 to really put a knife in his back. They wanted to say something hateful to Jesus and so they called him a Samaritan. That's how the Jews despised this people. So these people were looked down upon And in verse 5, it says that Jesus, he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar. Sychar is ancient Shechem, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It is about the sixth hour. The sixth hour means that it was about noon. If you ever see the third hour in the scripture, it means it was about nine in the morning. Now, real quickly, this well was not going to be heavily populated at this point in time of the day. Everybody was going to come to the well probably early in the morning. They would draw water for the day and they would head back into their village. Here it was, Jesus arrives at the well. He's thirsty, he's parched. You see his physical attributes and his humanity. He needs something to drink. He's tired, he's weary, and he comes to a well. Look at verse 7. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here it is, Jesus is meeting this woman at the well. She asked him a question, um, and, or he asked her, for, I'm sorry, he asked her for a question, hey, will you give me a drink? And which her response is, what are you doing asking me a question? Now here's why she replies that way. Not only is she seen as a Samaritan, half-breed, she's also a woman, which would have been a lower status in the culture. Now, here's one other interesting factor. When did Jesus arrive at the well? Was it the third hour or the sixth hour? Okay, let's ask that again. Edgewood was having a hard time here. Here we go. Was it the third hour or the sixth hour? Sixth hour. Now, real quickly, this is a clue for us. 
women in that culture would have come early in the morning. They would have come at the third hour, at nine in the morning, to draw their water. This woman arrives at the well the same time Jesus does, which is at the noon hour. She's alone. So the challenge is, is that Jesus, a Jew, is about to have a conversation with a Samaritan. Faux Paul, number one. You don't do that. Number two, he's going to ask her for a cup in which intends to, in some ways, exchange a cup with her because he doesn't have a cup of his own. Faux Paul, number two. The third thing is, is that he's there with this woman who happens to be there at the wrong time of the day. That says something about this woman. She must be an outcast in the society. She didn't go to draw water as a communal experience with the rest of the women in the village. Why? Because people look down on her for some reason. Now, we don't know why at this point, but what we do know is that she's there alone. And listen, Samaritan women... Jewish women don't go to the well alone. It's a communal thing. They go, they take their pots together, they carry them together. They can have joy and laughter on a difficult journey as they go and collect water for the day or for a couple of days, a very laborious, very difficult task. They don't do that alone. So here it is, Jesus is in Samaria talking to a woman, asking for a cup of something to drink from her. And more than that, this woman has some character flaws. Something's up that we have to pay attention to. Now, here's the challenge. She even asked the question, why are you a Jew talking to me? Not only talking to me, why are you asking for something to drink from me? Like, that's not, you don't do that. Jews, Jews don't do that. You shouldn't even be here. What are you doing here? That's her question. She is perplexed. And then he goes a step further and he goes, will you give me something to drink? And she goes, what? You, you want me to give you something to drink? And he goes, yeah, I've got nothing to draw water with. And, but then he asked this question, or he said, after she says, hey, you shouldn't have any dealings with me, he says this, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Salvation, isn't it? Through whom? His son. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was talking to you, who it was that was sitting in the well with you, you wouldn't be letting me ask you for a drink. You'd be asking me. Matter of fact, if you knew what was going on, you would say, can I have some living water? And the woman then said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So now she's a little bit perplexed. She's like, you're talking about living water. You have something that I don't have. You just asked me for a drink. I'm really confused. What living water are you talking about? Because this, this cistern's really deep. You've got nothing with you. What? And so if you can imagine this challenge that's going on, but here's what we know, and we'll know later in John's gospel, that Jesus is referring to himself here. Jesus is saying that he is the living water, John chapter 7. Matter of fact, Jesus says of himself, if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. That's what he's talking about. But this woman is having a, a very difficult time understanding that. But she does grasp enough of the conversation to ask another meaningful question. Look at verse 12. She asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She goes, listen, this well has been here at Mount Gerasim and Mount Ebal for 2,000 years. This is our well. We've been drawing water from it. And, and listen, it's, it's done well. Now, the reason that she says that is because wells in that day and time were always a symbol of life, always. Um, 
not only were they a symbol of life, they were a symbol of blessing. You can go back um, a long time and you could see how a well was a sign of life. It was a, a sign of, of, of water that would spring up from the ground that would bless villages for miles to come. So here it is, they're sitting in this well. and She goes, listen, this is our well. This is what Jacob gave us. She would attribute Jacob as being their, one of their spiritual fathers. So she's asking a question, can you do something for me that Jacob was talking about? That's what she's asking. And then Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So he goes, you can drink from Jacob's cistern. You can have all the water you want. You'll grow thirsty again. You'll be parched. And guess what? It will not prolong your life. This water is not anything special. You will still die. He goes on, he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. What he's saying is, is I've got water that you know nothing about. I've got water that if you drink of it, the living water that I offer, not only will you never go grow thirsty again, but it'll spring up to a well of eternal life, is what he says. Look at verse um, 14, the latter part. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then the woman said to him, Sir, give me that water. And then look what she says. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come where? Here. I don't want to come here to draw water again. What she's saying is, in many ways, is, hey, I want that. If you'll give me that perk, that would be a blessing. I'll take it right now. Why? Because I don't have to endure the day in, day out humiliation of coming alone on, at the noon hour. I don't have to continue the laborious task of drawing water for, for myself and, and others around me. I don't have to do that every day. So in some ways, she's saying, hey, give me the physical perks. Now, let me ask you this question. Lean in real quickly. Why do most Americans want Jesus? The physical perks. You know what the number one physical perk is? Heaven. You just give me heaven? What else do we want from Jesus? Do we want real living water? Do we want a wellspring of life flowing out from us? Is that what we desire? I don't know necessarily that's what a lot of people long for. What do they long for? They long for a place called heaven. They want blessings here on earth, and then they want the ability to do whatever they want. They want the physical perks that come with religion. But Jesus is, is going to push back on that. He's going to help her identify with something far beyond what she sees. Matter of fact, look at the shift in conversation. Up to this point, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan who's an outcast. They've been talking about water and what she knows nothing about. Then look what he does. He changes the entire script, the entire narrative, which by the way, Jesus is really good at. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, hey, why don't you go call your husband and come here? Okay, hold on. We were just talking about water. Why are you asking about my husband now? That's what she's, about, she's thinking. Then look what he says. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus then says to her, look, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one that you now live with is not your husband. So what you've said is true. Now he catches her, doesn't he? He goes, I want you to get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, no, you've had five. And the one that you're living with now, the sixth guy, is, is not your husband. So, but I do know about you. Now, if you can imagine real quickly what this woman must be thinking. I mean, how did we go from talking about water to now talking about husbands and which whom you know? Not only do you know who they are, you know everything about me. 
Matter of fact, the woman says to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yeah, something. There's got to be something going on. Now listen, here's where I need you to lean in with me. This is where it gets good, okay? This is why I love this story. F.F. Bruce, he was a New Testament scholar, great theologian. He said this. He says, it's not that this woman is just immoral. He says, it's just that she was lonely. This woman was looking for love. She was looking for acceptance, validation. I think she was looking for the same thing that probably almost every person in this room is looking for. Friends, isn't it crazy how we can be in our 50s or 60s or 70s and we're still looking in some ways for the same things that we were looking for when we were 9 or 11 or 14? Isn't it crazy that no matter how old our flesh seems to get this outer body, that somehow in our mind we still think, man, we're young and we're still looking for purpose and joy and meaning in life? This was this woman. She needed purpose. She needed validation. And she was looking for it in men who could not satisfy, who could not fulfill, and continually let her down. And here was in her culture, she was looked upon as someone who was um, alienated and estranged, someone who didn't have her life together, and someone who was immoral. But here it was, she was just trying to find a place of acceptance. Now, friends, here's why this passage is so cool. It's because this passage is you and me. Not only is it you and me, Jesus is not talking merely to a Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to a people, a Samaritan people. He's using a woman who is a, an adulteress, who is a fornicator, who is an idolater, who is worshiping the wrong God, who knows nothing about living water, and he's using her to teach an entire group of people about their challenges. Matter of fact, I don't have it up on the screen for you, but if you'll turn with me to 2 Kings, I want you to see this. Hold your spot there because we're coming right back. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now you're here and you're like, I don't have my Bible with me, so I'm toast. Listen, no, just listen very carefully, okay? Um, and then, hey, bring your Bible next week because you'll need it. 2 Kings chapter 17. Let me give you the narrative real quickly. Um, 2 Kings chapter 17, the Assyrians have come in and they've booted the people of Israel out. Why? Because God said, if you don't worship me, I'm going to boot you out of the land, right? God said it will come to pass. It did come to pass. He used the Assyrians. Everybody say Assyria. Okay, so Assyria gives Israel the boot. Got me? They leave some people behind. We've talked about this. They're the Samaritans. Now listen, then the king of Assyria thought, it's going to be a good idea if I send some people to inhabit the land of Samaria, Shechem, Sikar, all that area. Um, it'll be great. They'll intermarry. They'll have a good time with whoever's left there. Now here's what it says. And the king of Assyria brought people, listen, from Babylon, Kuthal, Aval, Hamath, and Sephar Vaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and they lived in the cities. And the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, it goes on, it tells you in 2 Kings 17 that God sent lions among them and they devoured some of the people. Now listen, if you're a king 
and you've got people inhabiting a land and they get devoured by lions. That's what we would call a catastrophe. Um, that's what we would call a social issue in which it would hit CNN and uh, Fox News and every other news agency. And, and guess what? The king of Assyria is going, hey, we got a problem. We got to get rid of the lions. And by the way, why are they even here? Word sent to the king of Assyria that the lions have shown up because God has said the people living in Samaria are not dwelling in the land that God gave them in a way that's proper. Matter of fact, he goes, the law has departed and there is no law. So Assyria king, the Assyrian king goes, you know what? Go get one of the priests that was here that taught the law. Go get one of them and bring them back and let them teach the law here. And so guess what? They, they decide we're going to have our own priest. They do that. They have their own um, way, custom of doing that. They do all that. And, and they set that up. And time and time again, you'll see that for a little while they feared the Lord, but then they did not. Now, here's what's interesting. The Samaritans did not obey the Lord, and so the Lord's favor, his presence, was not upon them. But here's the question. How many different cultures was it that invaded Samaria? Here we go. Y'all count with me. Babylon. Hold on, let's say that together. Babylon one. Okay, there you go. I'll have to teach you. Here we go. Babylon. Kuthal. Aval. Hamath. Sepharvaim. Samaria had five husbands. And what were they doing? They were looking for a sixth. This was a this was a people that they did anything they could to sell themselves out. They were looking for the Messiah. They heard that the Messiah coming. They knew that, that the lineage of Jacob had a blessing. They had a well there. They had a priesthood. They had a temple. They had everything. The problem was is they were sincere in their worship, but they were sincerely wrong. Can you ever have somebody that's sincere in their worship and they'd be wrong? Yes. Do they still need hope in this world? Yes. So the Samaritans were fornicators. They had sold themselves out to five different people. They were looking for a sixth husband. They were looking for someone to fulfill, someone to bring longing. It's this woman at the well. It's her. She's the example that God would use through Jesus. But she is simply a replica of Samaria. Verse 20 she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. What's she talking about? Second Kings. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She goes, we worship here at Mount Ebal. We worship here at, at uh, Gerasim, at Shechem. We have, our own, we have our own way of doing it. You say y'all are right, but we think we're right. Does that ever happen in the culture? And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? Why? Because what is Jesus trying to teach everyone? He's going, listen, you think that the Jews are right, and the Jews think they're right. Samaritans think you're right, and the Samaritans think you're right. But the problem is, all of you can be wrong. Why? Because there's coming a day where you're not going to worship God on a mountain. It's not going to be about a place. Why? Because Jesus says, when I'm the living water, what does he say? The living water. In John chapter 7, verse 39, he says, is when the Holy Spirit enters a person. So he goes, it's not about a temple. 
It's about worshiping your Father. And he says, verse 22, You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, and when He comes, He will tell us all of these things. So there's a longing, there's an expectation, there's a fulfillment. She's looking around for someone to satisfy, someone to give her truth. That's what the Samaritans were looking for. This wasn't a new concept. This was something that was pervasive in all the culture. And then Jesus says this in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm him. I'm the bread in which if you take of, you'll never hunger again. I'm the drink, in which if you partake of, you'll never thirst again. And then all of a sudden, you have this, this meaningful moment. You know, it's like she, she has the light bulbs go off, and then here's the disciples to, to kind of mess it up. They show up. Here it is. And the disciples came back, and they marveled. They're talking to a woman, and, and, and no one said, hey, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Why? Because they're bringing food back. They got water. They're like, hey, Jesus, here's water burger. We got it. And here it is, this woman has just now come to the place. And while they have questions about, why are you talking to her? You're a Jew. She's, she's a Samaritan. Why are you all having a conversation? The reality is, is that they had one thing on their mind. They had food, right? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Is the hope, the expectant waiting, is it, has it come to fruition? Is, is this him? Is, is this what we settle on? Now, what's crazy is, is the narrative continues. And I'm just going to share it with you real quickly. I'm not going to read it for you. And I'm not going to put it for you on the screen. But it continues. And, and here it is. The disciples have showed up. They have Whataburger. And what they begin to do is urge Jesus to eat. They're like, hey, eat. You need to eat. You're tired. You need to eat. And Jesus then says, listen, I have food that you know nothing about. And basically he goes, I'm nourished when I do the will of my father. That, that's what sustains me. And he continues to talk about that. And he goes, and listen, there's a harvest. And he goes, you guys are expecting a harvest to come in four months, but can I tell you that the harvest is white? It's white for harvest now. Lift up your eyes is what he says. He tells them, look around for the fields are white. And if you can imagine, he's living right there in that moment in a place of Samaria where all of them would have been clothed in white linens. And he goes, look around. This is a place where hope can be realized. This is a place where hope can be fulfilled. And he says, and we're about to reap a harvest. Now, what's interesting is verse 39 to 41 as a result of this woman and her going and telling everybody about what Jesus had told her, namely, that he told her all that she had ever done, many people believed this woman's testimony. So much that there was life change that the Samaritans even talked Jesus into staying for a couple of days. And while they were there, they marveled at his teaching. And in verse 42, it says that many of them said, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, meaning the woman, for we have heard for ourselves, and we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Friends, that's the hope of Christmas. Now look, here's 
the amazing thing about this text, why I love this story so much, is because this is not merely the Samaritans. This is not merely a, an immoral woman. This is you and me. This is your first Gentile convert in the New Testament. Which, by the way, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Interesting enough, the chapter 4, John 3, you have Jesus um, having a conversation with an Orthodox Jew, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He shows you how he's pursuing the Jew, the Orthodox, and then he shows you how he's pursuing the unorthodox, the immoral, the Gentile, the mutt, you and me. Friends, when you read your Bible, you can identify with this woman, and let me tell you how. Because every single one of us have spent our life chasing for things to fulfill. I don't know what the, the thing is that you've searched for, I would say that there's many of us in this room that have probably pursued many relationships hoping for longing and love and satisfaction. I would imagine there's many of us that we've been searching for purpose and we hope to find it in a job. That if we can finally just land this gig, then I'll be somebody. Man, I'll have purpose. I'll have meaning. I'll have notoriety. I'll have the house I want and the car I want. And we can start the family that I want. I think a lot of us, we measure our success and even the hope of this time of the year by how big our tree is and how many lights we can put up, how many gifts we put under the tree for our kids. But listen, can I just tell you that if you have no lights and you have no trees and you have no Santa Claus and you have no gifts under the tree, that you still have hope because hope is a person. And that person, when realized, you know he's living water who satisfies not merely for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says, I have made it my mission. And the reason that I'm here is not merely to preach first to the Gentile, but he goes, I am to take the gospel, the message of Jesus, to the Gentile, to the dirty, nasty half-breeds. Now, friends, here, here's the deal. We live in a culture where, as Americans, we, we don't see ourselves like that. We're Americans. We've got it all together. We can look down on a lot of other countries, but most countries look up to us. So, this message is not incredibly popular among us as Americans because we go, look, we're, we're a great people. But I think when we know the heart of the gospel, when we know the words of Paul in Romans 3, that there's not one righteous, not even one, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that many of us have not merely had five husbands that we're searching after, but we've had seven or nine or 11 or 45 things that we're longing to fulfill us. Maybe it's not a man. Maybe it's not a woman but it's something other than living water. It just shows our need, right? That we have a, a giant need in our soul for something. And can I just tell you, hope realized is when you know that there's nothing that will fulfill like that of Jesus Christ. Amen. We can clap for that. And friends, I'll tell you that as we leave this place, as we set ourselves up for the expectation and the hope realized through Advent, you can't have any of it, joy or faith or peace without the expectation and the hope that Jesus made himself known to Gentiles. And the very first one was the one um, that was super duper ugly so that you would know the expectation is set, that no matter where you've been, 
no matter what you've done and no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he's pursuing you. And friends, maybe you go, I have hope realized. My question is, is who around you is in despair and needs hope? May we be like this woman who goes out to the masses and tells them that I have found the Messiah and he told me all that I've ever done. Friends, if you want God to reveal all that you've ever done to you, ask him because he'll show you how scarred up and bruised and battered you are, but how much more healing he can give you when you trust in him. And so may we make Christmas not about us, but about the hope that is realized through our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this woman. I thank you, Lord, that she's not just a picture of the Samaritans. She's not just a picture of, of herself, this immoral um, woman who's been a part of many mixture of marriages. But Lord, she is a picture of us. God, we are confused people in this country. Lord, we are a people who are looking for life and oftentimes looking in all the wrong places. God, may we realize that salvation is not found in being born in this culture. Salvation is not found in notoriety or success. It's not found in relationships. Lord, we know that that salvation is what we need and it's what we find only in the person, the work of Jesus. So Lord, may we lift our eyes to the heavens. May we know where our hope comes from and may we fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And may we declare the same of that of the Samaritans, the half-breeds that were detestable in the Jews' sight. May we declare what they did, that we have found the Savior of the world. God, hope has arrived. And I pray that we would look to you for that hope. In Jesus' name we pray.